Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this episode of Behind the Headlines. Today, we are going to be talking about education in the state of Michigan amidst yet a continued shutdown to December 20th. On the show today, we're going to have Melissa Frick, who covers education for Grand Rapids and Muskegon, and Zara Ahmed, who covers education statewide. So let's jump into the episode. As I said, our guests today, Melissa and Zara, are queued up and ready to go. But first, let me introduce you to my co-host, Vice President for Content at MLive, John Heiner. How are you, my friend? Eric Halkren, I am well, and, and thank you for the sterling introduction, as always. And uh, I'm glad that uh, we got our discussion about the Lions and Bears done off-air. You're uh, welcome. We, 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 when I feel bad about my fandom, I, I think of you being a Bears fan, and, and so... Uh, Thank you for the Bears coming along at the right time. You know, they they always come along at the right time. And I told you two weeks ago that it was way worse to be a Bears fan because they will let you down at the most (laughs) inopportune moment. So there we go. Well, anyways, last week uh, we talked about uh, some entities that are struggling with the the pandemic lockdown orders here in Michigan. Bars and restaurants had a really good some insights about what they're facing and the challenges um, ahead for them with this winter and, and the rise and infection rates and, and fatalities um, going into a pretty dark winter here. But, uh, you know, there's other sectors of, of our society and economy that are struggling as well. And, and one that's, I think, been very notable in Michigan, MLive's re- written a lot about it, is education. Uh, from K-12 all the way through colleges, uh, a lot of stops and starts this year. A lot of difficult decisions have been made, and in some cases, school by school basis. And, uh, you know, yesterday, the, the governor and the health department in Michigan extended the, the social um, orders another 12 days, uh, pretty much effectively probably ends the fall sports season, uh, although that remains to be seen. But it also puts a spotlight back on schools that are struggling to get education done. We've had a lot of good reporting recently on MLive about, uh, you know, the manifold effects of this all the way down to how effective is even virtual learning. But today to explore some of these issues, I'd like to bring on a couple of our reporters, Melissa Frick, who covers education um, for the Grand Rapids and Muskegon area for MLive, and Zara Ahmad from our statewide team, uh, who covers the, the issues from a little bit um, higher perspective uh, statewide. And uh, they've both been writing about these issues recently. Um, Zara, we could just kick it off with you because you had a piece over the weekend um, about why high school students have to do uh, remote learning and some schools still have the option to do K through eight learning. And it, it really boils down to some, some health factors uh, rather than educational. So if you could, why don't you just walk us through your story? So I, the, we had an order coming out that we were going to have a temporary shutdown. And I noticed that elementary school kids and middle schools were excluded from um, the the halt to in-person learning. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And I had talked to experts before about this. There were some theories coming or going around saying that um, elementary kids aren't as susceptible, or maybe they won't have such, they won't have um, as aggressive as symptoms or whatever the case might be. 
all kids, no matter how old you are, everybody is susceptible to COVID-19. You will get it. <laughs> there's, there isn't, um, that's not proven. But what I did find interesting after talking to experts was the mitigation that goes into preventing it from spreading in the schools and then the behavior of these students. So elementary and middle school students, yes, they are social, but their behavior is different from high school and college age students because of that lack of independence in a way. So usually when they go from school, they just go home and then they're monitored at home by their parents. Whereas high school students and college age students have a little bit more leeway. They have cars, they're able to drive, especially if you're in college and you're away from home, say, you know, you go to MSU and even though MSU didn't have any in-person learning, it was all virtual. You wanted to move back to campus because that's where all your friends were. Well, there's not really much to monitor there. You know, you can't have a health official or a teacher or a parent say you can't go out and do this because they're going to go and do it regard regardless. So it's just a behavioral thing, really, what it comes down to. And I think at the, the grand scheme of things, if you look at it, it just goes to show you that the mitigation um, strategies that all of these health officials are nailing into us, they work. I mean, that's why you don't see these massive outbreaks in elementary schools and middle schools, because if they are, I should say, if the the people in charge are routinely cleaning, they're making sure everybody's wearing a mask, they keep everyone six feet apart. That's why you don't see those massive outbreaks, right? So it's everything that we've been told by health officials that would mitigate the spread is just playing out to be true in these schools. I will say as the father of an 18-year-old, everything changes when they turn 16 and it, it's because of the car keys. It's not because it's like some maturity thing. It's like once the, they have the car and the independence, you know, I'm going to go meet my friends for lunch or I'm staying, I'm going to do a sleepover or whatever. And uh, I, I talked to a lot of parents since the, the lockdowns have happened and it's hard to suppress teenagers. It's hard to keep them. It's hard to keep them in the house. So one thing I wanted to get to go into the, your story uh, though it said the rates you cited one school district where you know, the rates uh, of all the of all the younger people who got it, two percent were like in K through eight, and four percent were like high school age, and then the the rest were older than high school age. Is that really a radical difference that would justify keeping you know high school kids doing remote learning, um, or is that four percent because they have been doing remote learning? So I think when it boils down to it, again, it's back to that social behavioral issue. High school students are just more likely to go out. The issue when we talk about schools isn't the outbreaks within the schools, but getting coronavirus outside of school and then bringing it back in. So when you t- when you factor in that behavioral risk, like you said, as soon as they get the car keys, they're going to go do whatever they want and they'll come back. Well, that increases their chances of getting coronavirus and bringing it back to the school, which increases the chances of an outbreak within the school. You have all those contacts, you have the socialization with schools, and you have the shuffling of classes. In elementary schools, you're often in one classroom, so it's very easy to contain, monitor the students, make sure they're following the mitigation strategies. While in high school, you have shuffling around to different classes, different subjects, that hallway interaction. And again, it just boils down to the the risk is just greater. Um, Not to mention high school students are going to get worse symptoms than elementary school students. And that's just what the science is playing out right now. A lot of children could be asymptomatic, whereas the symptoms may be more severe, putting those older students at risk. Mm -hmm. Melissa, you cover this on the ground at the school level in the Grand Rapids and Muskegon areas, all the various districts that are making 
their own decisions about, you know, in, in recent weeks, several districts that you've written about have gone to all virtual. So what were the factors that they were seeing that led to them to make these kind of decisions? So across the board, the number one issue um, that schools are facing throughout late October and then November was substitute shortages and staff shortages. So if um, a teacher, for example, is identified as a close contact, so they haven't necessarily tested positive for COVID, but they've come into contact with someone who has, and so now they have to quarantine for 14 days, that's a hole um, that the district is now left to fill. Um, and the state was already facing um, just a general shortage of substitute teachers, which has gone down over the past couple of years, just because um, the numbers of people going to that field is declining. Um, so they were already facing that issue. And then, you know, a lot of substitutes decided at the start of the school year, because many of them are, you know, retired teachers or maybe in high risk groups. Um, so they decided that they don't want to go back into teaching this year. Um, and so that's left districts in a really tough spot. Um, they may not have a whole ton of cases uh, being identified within the district, but either way they're being forced to close because they just don't have the bodies for adults to be in the room with these children. So I, uh, yeah, so that's that's been a real tough issue for, for districts um, over the past couple of weeks. And a lot of what Zara said is absolutely true um, about the ability to cohort for younger students. Um, so I know a district, so we've got Rockford Public Schools in the Grand Rapids area. It's one of the largest school districts in West Michigan. Um, and the superintendent there, Mike Scheibler, uh, when the state announced that high schools were going to be closed for three weeks, a couple weeks ago, um, he decided to also close middle schools, but he said that he was going to keep elementary schools open. And this was when a lot of other peer districts were uh, closing down their K through eight learning as well. Um, and he said that that's because at the elementary level, you know, you've got a classroom of a couple dozen kids and they're not interacting with other kids or other teachers. They're really remaining in their individual cohort. And because of that, he's able to look at uh, cases at literally a classroom by classroom basis. So if you've got four or five cases popping up in a school, he's not gonna close down the entire school because of that. He might literally take one or two classrooms and say, you know, you guys quarantined for two weeks just as a safety precaution. The rest of them, you're not pulling all those other kids out of school. Um, so that's been, you know, something that elementary school leaders are able to look at. Um, you know, you don't have, like Zara said, kids walking around and going to different classrooms, you know, often six or seven classes throughout the day. Um, but yeah, John, like you said, um, there are a lot of schools over the past couple of weeks that decided, even though the state only mandated high schools to close, um, they decided to also close their elementary and middle schools. Um, and I was really surprised when that first state order came down because what I had heard time and time again from not only school leaders, but from health experts is schools are some of the safest places to be right now, much safer than if you're going to a restaurant or a bar or um, you know, interacting, you know, even inviting a couple friends over to your house um, because kids are wearing masks consistently in the schools. You're not seeing the issues where, 
you know, across the state, you've got adults pushing back saying that they don't want to wear a mask in a grocery store for 30 minutes. That's not happening in the schools. They've kind of accepted it as this is just something that's got to be done in order for us to stay safe and continue in person learning. Um, and so you're not seeing a lot of um, spread of COVID-19 actually happening, happening inside the school buildings. It's really a matter of people being infected by community spread. Um, and then as a result, you're having to close mm -hmm. down some school buildings because of people being identified as close contacts. So I was really surprised uh, when high schools were first closed, um, you know, in the first place, because I know that they're, they're really some of the places, safest places that you could be amid mm -hmm. the pandemic. Well, and Zara's reporting where she had stats, um, where it's really meteoric is on college campuses. Um, and that's the social aspect of it that you're talking about. So, um, you know, bars and restaurants have kind of be, become the, or the brunt of small business, you know, losses in the pandemic. Well, high school students, you know, both academically and sports wise have bore the brunt of the educational shutdowns for the most part. No, I was just going to say, Melissa, I'm in Rockford and to see the disparity between the high school cases and the elementary school cases and specifically to where I am, Roguewood being the elementary school and across the street being high school, it was interesting to see the amount of cases that would happen in high school because of that mixing that wouldn't happen at the elementary. But the question I wanted to ask you was anecdotally, I don't have any empirical evidence, but anecdotally, it also seemed like in Kent County, there was a bus driver shortage because when my kids were going to school, we had a new bus driver literally every day. And I wonder if that's another reason to shut the whole thing down because you don't have teachers and you don't have transportation. Absolutely. It is not just teacher shortages. Um, it's everything from custodial staff to uh, people working in food services, you know, the people that are providing lunch to your kids on a daily basis, um, administrators, bus drivers, especially. Uh, my family, we live in the Forest Hills Public Schools District, and that's where my siblings go. And it feels like almost every week they're posting on their website saying, you know, these five bus routes are going to be closed this week due to bus driver shortages. Um, and, you know, parents are left having to take their kids to school. Um, but yeah, it does not affect just teachers. It's all adults that are part of the school system. Um, all sectors are being impacted by um, this issue. And it's, it's, it's really difficult for school leaders because, you know, like I said, they may not have a lot of cases in their district um, and they've been safe, but it's just a matter of not having the adults inside the classroom or inside the school building. One thing that, um, we had a story by Riley Murdoch, who's a reporter for us up in the Saginaw area in the past week, where he talked about the effectiveness of online learning uh, for different age groups and uh, the fatigue that sets in number one, but also the effectiveness and kind of like the younger the student, uh, the harder it might be to get traction with education in a remote setting. And Zara, in, in researching your story or, or doing your stories, you know, what did you learn about that? Yeah, so I actually wrote a story about that a few months ago, right when that shift started. And a lot of experts said that, I mean, it's not going to surprise anybody, but elementary aged kids in poor zip codes are going to struggle the most because they rely so much on what school in-person learning does for them and provides for them. So yeah, the research right now is saying that they expect um, kind of a 
I don't want to say huge learning loss, but a learning loss nonetheless um, amongst these students because they are they don't have all of the resources that they're normally um, that are normally available to them when they're at home. And I think that kind of also plays into why high schools and colleges were allowed to or weren't allowed to continue in person while elementary schools and middle schools were. You have to think about the daycare aspect as well. I mean, these are going to be students that are at home with their parents. Their parents may not be able to help them because they're working, whereas high school students and college students can kind of monitor their education better because of the age difference and that maturity. And so, yeah, a lot of the experts right now are just kind of concerned about how far back this is going to take students because we already expect a learning loss throughout the summer. Um, and that is just traditional every single year. Teachers expect some some learning loss over the summer. But you have to understand this has been like nine months now where they're education and their learning processes have been dramatically impacted. And I think like anything else with COVID, this has just shown all of the holes um, within our education system and funding and the resources and how much support we have for our teachers and school bus drivers and everybody else that's involved in operating a school. And I think that at the end of this, I think the state legislator really has to ask themselves like, what kind of system are we building and would it be able to sustain another um, crisis like COVID? I think that's kind of the, that's kind of what we have to ask ourselves in every aspect, but especially education, because we've seen how much it is impacting us. And if anyone um, puts it together, if your education is impacted, your future economy is also mm -hmm. impacted, right? Well, one interesting, well, there's a million interesting things about there's tentacles of, pan of the pandemic that touch everything. And there's been interesting things like, for instance, how, uh, you know, the shutdowns, the school, the, the virtual learning has actually been harder on working females than males because they, they revert to like traditional gender roles of, of parenting, teaching, you know, and trying to clean the house because everyone's home. They're not in, they're not in the workplace. And there are things that we never we stop thinking about because you know we've been so progressive as a society and then you get into this kind of uh you know this kind of situation where we're all home the kids are home and the schools could only do so much and it's it's straining all of these parts of our of our relationships socially culturally educationally economically it's fascinating but it, it's also terrible <laughs> at the same time um you know one thing that showed me too you touched on how this could lead to some educational reform possibly. But one thing I've noticed about this since uh, the spring uh, when it first, when schools were hit with this was how decentralized um, organization planning execution of plans to do this it was like 500 school districts left to their own. And it's this hodgepodge. And, and then you throw in, you know, charters or private schools and schools that don't want to make kids wear masks and, you know, you know, like we're the land of the free, but we're really disorganized too. So that lack of central planning, I don't know, maybe some reform will come out of this, but um, we're still in that situation. You get a 12 day extension, you got 500 school districts trying to figure out how to handle it. And uh, Melissa, you, you also wrote last week about a, a pretty dramatic decline in the student population at Grand Rapids Public Schools. And there's got to be pandemic fingerprints all over that as well. So, so what oh. did you find? Oh yeah, it's, it's solely because of the pandemic. Um, so uh, Grand Rapids Public Schools is the largest school district in West Michigan. They last year had um, enrollment of about 15,000 students. Um, and so they just 
within the past week got their numbers back from the count day period, which actually happened in October, but it took a lot of crunching numbers for the district to figure out exactly how many students they were missing because uh, they're conducting classes fully remotely. Um, and so they found out that they're missing over, or excuse me, um, over 800 students left the district. Um, and almost all of them cited uh, the district's decision to conduct fully remote learning this semester as the reason for uh, leaving the district because um, you've got a lot of family situations where, you know, maybe it's a single parent household or you've got both parents working and they can't take the time off of work to stay home with their child and help them with learning. Um, and so they just simply had to leave the district. And so it's been across the board in terms of some families left the district to do homeschooling, um, some left to other public schools in the area or even private schools, and then some just transitioned to um, charter schools that uh, are specifically in um, online learning. Um, but there are going to be real implications for uh, those kids leaving the district, and the district is going to do everything it can um, to bring those families back once the pandemic is over. But this year, um, you know, that loss of 800 students is going to amount to about a million dollars um, in state funding. Um, and that comes even as the state had adjusted its funding formula this year to account for the fact that um, you know, a lot of families may leave districts uh, because of the pandemic and, you know, uh, they didn't want to uh, hurt those districts because of that because it's kind of out of their power. Um, but even with that new funding formula, they're still going to be losing roughly a million dollars. And um, that's something that they're going to have to tackle in the upcoming weeks in terms of um, how they're going to offset that, that budget issue. So they've said that nothing is off the table. It, it could amount to program cuts staff cuts, it's it's really up in the air right now. But um, yeah, that's been a major, major issue for districts, especially the largest districts across the state. So you look at Grand Rapids Public Schools, Muskegon, Kalamazoo, Ann Arbor. Um, a lot of those chose to uh, do fully remote learning this semester. Um, and so it's gonna be interesting to see how many of them ended up losing students as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Zara, you'd mentioned the legislature a little bit earlier. Like the political landscape, you know, the real high profile stuff since last spring has been um, small businesses and, you know, the freedom to open in the barbershops and the bars and salons and gyms. And um, but here we have a, we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of students in Michigan who are being affected by this and this hodgepodge, as I said, of, of how it's being dealt with on the local district levels. Is there any political will to do something about this? Um, whether it's try to make mandates that are more uniform or to get help to these school districts for having trouble finding, you know, teacher shortages, sub shortages, driver shortages. What's the state political landscape on this? So there is a will, um, but it comes from experts. It comes from health experts. It comes from education experts. It comes from teachers. It comes from the people that, understand why it's so important to have education reform because it wasn't stable, right? And this pandemic kind of showed that. Decentralized, inadequate funding, the sh teacher shortages, all of those were issues before the pandemic. They were elevated once this pandemic hit, right? When you don't have a stable system, when it's not strong enough to sustain itself, you're gonna see all those holes expand, the weaknesses get worse. Um, as for the state legislator, 
I haven't really heard anything, right? I, it seems like our state legislator right now is wrapped in the election and the controversies and the lawsuits and the hearings and all of the stuff that's going on with that. And I haven't really heard anything about education reform. I honestly haven't really heard much besides the formula getting readjusted. Mm-hmm. But other than that, no, I don't, I, I haven't seen it be a huge focus. And that's not to say there aren't people in the legislator or in the legislative body that care. I just think that it's not, their priority at the moment. And I'm not sure if that's because their constituents are more focused on say small businesses and the economy being impacted and students have kind of taken a back burner. I think that's usually the case with education um, because it's not an immediate impact, right? And I think that is that is the one thing that I have noticed as a reporter um, is if there isn't an immediate impact, people tend to lack in their urgency to respond to the issue, right? And so, yes, these students are impacted in being impacted immediately, but I don't think a lot of people in the legislature are thinking about the long-term impacts this could have on students and teachers and school districts. Like um, Melissa had just talked about, this $1 million that Grand Rapids Public Schools is going to lose, that's significant and that's going to impact them in the future. But I don't think that's necessarily what lawmakers are super focused on right now. Um, And I think just looking at like the last two weeks of coverage, um, when it comes to the state legislator, it's been primarily focused on the election and the votes that have already been certified. Mm-hmm. Well, I so, think uh, yeah. I, I just want to say I think one of the key things that um, legislators are going to focus on after the pandemic is addressing Michigan's digital divide. And you know, we've all been really honed in on the fact that um, it really varies from district to district across the state of Michigan whether or not students have the ability to simply connect to the internet, which we you know, is kind of like the basic foundation that you need to do virtual learning or even hybrid learning. Um, And so I know um, over in Muskegon County, you've got Ravenna Public Schools, which is in more of a rural area. And um, their superintendent is really pushing uh, for legislators to address this digital divide. And just, they lack the basic infrastructure just to connect to the Wi-Fi in the first place. Like regardless of, Wi-Fi hotspots, regardless of having access to technology, um, they don't have that fundamental ability to connect to the internet where they live because they're out in a rural area. So I think that that's gonna be uh, really key um, for people to address right after the pandemic is making sure the state of Michigan can connect to the internet because it's it's 2020, you know? Um, And I think that moving forward, schools are gonna be implementing more online learning. That's what I've heard from a lot of school leaders. And so um, in order to do that, we're gonna first have to address the digital divide that's become so prominent amid the pandemic. Yeah, Zari touched on that too in in, uh, depressed communities um, where there's poverty, they're gonna have less digital um, access. And uh, shared some demographics uh, with uh, our diversity group, uh, Zara, that had some census information and household demographic. And the, the connectivity rates by household to the internet are a lot lower in the Detroit area than they are in other fairly affluent, like Oakland County, Washtenaw County, and Kent County. Um, they're dramatically lower. And, and one of the things Riley Murdoch had in his story is that uh, in the Staginaw area, which of course um, it has some marginal. Uh, parts of the community, uh, you know, the kids can't connect or they aren't connecting. 
and the schools are trying to track them down. So I, I think I think you're I think what's what you what you both have said is this pandemic is exposing every crack. And, you know, the fact that they're trying to soldier on through it uh, without any, you know, like I said, centralized plan uh, they're to do this themselves. Um, it, you know, as I guess it's admirable at one point, but you, to go back to something you said, Melissa, is like how effective is this year's education going to be? I mean, do we just throw out all standardized testing and, you know, uh, the colleges just kind of look at kids based on their, uh, their extracurriculars <laughs> or do yeah. we just, do we just start over? I mean, it is, it is a lost year to a lot of experts that I have talked to. That's what they're calling it a lost year. But I think it's super important that when we talk about this lost year, we don't shift the blame on the educators or the students or the parents because they're trying their absolute hardest to adjust. I think that the weight of this lost year really needs to fall on to the people that are making the laws, the ones that are supposed to respond in crises and emergencies we're not supposed to, we're not equipped for that. That's not our jobs. I didn't go to school to handle a crisis. That's not in my job description, but our leaders in in the Capitol right now, that is their job, right? Like it is your job to handle these issues as they arise. And so the fault of this last year doesn't really fall on the teachers or the, the school district superintendents. I really don't think it does fall on them because how are they supposed to prepare for this? This wasn't in their job description either, right? And it is decentralized. There isn't like a, a set plan for a pandemic, right? That's going to keep everybody at home. There isn't a set plan to get everybody internet. I think that really does fall on the legislators. And unfortunately, we're having issues even having a session because of COVID outbreaks and people not following the rules. Mm-hmm. and exposing themselves or holding, you know, a testimony where a testimony where the person ended up having, you know, the, the main person there ended up having COVID and exposing all of them. And now another session is being postponed. And so I think the pressure, again, we is being applied to the legislator. And that's really where it needs to stay. Because if you want to avoid this happening in another crisis, because crises, they happen. History tells us that, right? This isn't new, a pandemic. It's new to us because we're experiencing it within our lifetimes, but crises has happened, whether they're economic, whether it's a health crisis, they're going to happen. And I think the state legislator needs to walk away from this and understand like, how do we build systems that can support another crisis? Because I'm not sure if it happens again, like, will we be able to sustain this? I mean, we're doing pretty well considering, right? We still have kids in school. We still have people finishing up. And we're managing, I mean, the, the cases themselves are pretty skyrocketing right now. And I think that's our biggest issue, but it really does fall back into the people that went into the job and are supposed to be handling the crises. And we're supposed to be leaning on them for support, not just kind of figuring it out ourselves. Cause that's, I think that was like the main theme right. of the school year, right? Is like, everybody needs to just figure it out for themselves. We talked about <laughs> this last week when we were talking in relation to small businesses and restaurants and bars is that, the governor's proposed a hundred million dollar relief package uh, for, for businesses, and well, you know, for two weeks the legislature's been having a dog and pony show. Um, and you could say his name it was Giuliani, who had COVID, and he's the one who showed up, sat next to everybody, and he even made one guy take his mask off. So, I mean, it's just it's kind of ludicrous. And when a when a hurricane is coming down on New Orleans. The Army Corps of Engineers shows up in the National Guard and they, they, you know, they make dikes and sandbags and they help people. And then FEMA shows up and helps people. And we have this pandemic and it's like, you know, 500 school districts, fend for yourself, you know, figure it out. 
And so I think there is, there, there's a, there's a lack of, well, it's kind of embarrassing that it's come to this point. And then there's a lot of finger pointing that happens too, when parents are upset or, you, you know, and what was the flashpoint of the whole educational year? Oh, we're pausing football. Now that got everybody mad, right? Now we got your attention. <laughs> so anyways, um, I digress as I frequently do on this show. Um, one thing, uh, kind of a final thought for you guys to weigh in on, uh, vaccines. It looks like the vaccine for America is getting the FDA green light. Uh, and it's, it's going to be available pretty soon for first, you know, first responders and essential healthcare workers and so forth and so on. Eventually they're going to want to, I would imagine to vaccinate all college students who are coming back to campuses. And, but knowing that this is on the horizon, what, what do you guys see happening um, this winter and spring going into to next year? Um, I, I wonder if uh, teachers are going to be considered, you know, part of those essential frontline workers and be in some of the first rounds of picks uh, for vaccine availability. Um, I feel like that would be uh, the most logical next step because, um, you know, a lot of teachers at the start of the school year were scared to re-enter the classroom because of COVID safety issues. Um, and so, I mean, I could see teachers being some of the first to be vaccinated if they choose to, to do so. Um, in terms of college students, I think that's an interesting thought. I, I probably wouldn't have thought as of college students as being required to get vaccinated before coming back to campus. I wonder how, um, how willing they're gonna be to do that. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think that's something that we're gonna see in the coming months is not necessarily who's like able to be vaccinated first, but who might be willing to be oh. vaccinated. Imagine this though, from a public health standpoint, if we'd had the vaccine just being available in October, who would you want to give it to first before they all came home for Thanksgiving? You know, <laughs> I mean, they were like college campuses were super spreaders. Um, so it isn't that they're not healthy people and are going to survive it. It's, it's the fact that they, they spread it so much and carry it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do wonder if it's going to be like one of those things where you have to get vaccinated before you go to school. Do you remember having to get those shots before you were able to go back to school? I, have that. Um, oh, right. I, I do wonder if that's what it's, yeah, I wonder if that that's what it's going to be like. And I think my biggest concern is anti-vaxxers um, because we're already hearing that. Are you going to take it? Are you going to take it? Are you going to take it? I don't know if I trust it. And I understand because it, it was such a rapid turnaround, but we also have to understand that COVID paused the entire world. So yeah, there was so much money funneled into making sure that there is a vaccine and there's an urgency to it because like we said, it spreads so quickly. You never know who it's going to impact. It's been kind of sporadic. We know that there's like an older um, age group, but the spread is, that's the craziest part. I got COVID for a bit and I was asymptomatic. And I think that is what scared me the most. I wasn't even sure or knew that I had it until I had to go get tested for a flight. And then they're like, oh no, you have COVID. And that blew my mind. I mean, I was a carrier, mm -hmm. had no idea. So I would hope that uh, college students eventually would get there, but I harp on what um, Melissa was saying about the teachers. I think that they are kind of first responders and mm -hmm. they are on the front lines and it would only make sense for them to get it as well. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Zara and Melissa, for joining us today. Some really thorny issues for schools are they're going, it's, it, you know, they've just been in the thick of this the whole year and it, it doesn't look like, it looks like 
week to week, they're still left with making all the difficult decisions at these local levels. And uh, I feel for the teachers, I feel for the kids who I, I know are, are struggling from anecdotal evidence um, from uh, family members I know who have kids and, and coworkers and so forth talking about, you know, not just the fact that they're in the house all the time and you, you try to keep them engaged, but, but how much they're missing the school year. But everyone uh, uh, is losing a little something in this pandemic. It's been it's been very challenging. And Eric, probably not the last time we talked about COVID this year. What do you I'm, think? I'm sure not. <laughs> so thanks. Thanks again, Melissa and Zara for joining us. And thank you, Eric. Thank you. Absolutely. And there they go. A huge thanks to Melissa and Zara for joining us today and talking about education amidst the COVID pandemic. For John and I, here's what you can do for us. Wherever you get your podcast, like, review, and share the episodes to friends. It would help us out a lot. Till next week, I am Eric Hulkerin, he is John Heiner, and this is Behind the Headlines.